Well, let me briefly recap for you last Sunday, and that will move us right into today's message. Now, last Sunday, we introduced a new series here that we're doing for the fall in Isaiah, and we're not going to do the whole book of, the uh, whole thing of Isaiah, but we're, we're looking at the very different uh, choice chapters. And uh, under the topic of trusting God in troubled times. And when those troubled times come, what happens to your trust in God? Hopefully it strengthens. Sometimes, though, it doesn't. And the question we asked last Sunday was, are you listening to God? In Isaiah chapter 1, are you listening to God? And and in that message, we saw that uh, there were three different parts to this. Uh, There is the messenger in his time, of course, the messenger who, of course, Isaiah. And we looked at the book of Isaiah, and it's, uh, it was a rec- it's a record of visions and what Isaiah saw and conveying it to the people there from God. Forty to fifty years of ministry over 66 chapters, which is actually something kind of interesting, interesting about the uh, uh, book of Isaiah. It's, it's been told that uh, Isaiah is really similar to f- format of the Bible as well, too. In 66 chapters of, of Isaiah, you also have six, 66 books of the Bible. And, of course, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and then come together. And so there's some similarities there, I guess, as well, too. But, of course, you know it quite well with all the prophecies of the Messiah in that. This was a time of fear for Judah when Isaiah was, uh, had his ministry, with the constant threat of Assyria always looming over them. And uh, judgment was coming. But there's hope. And Isaiah was trying to convey that message. But first, his message of judgment was given. And he said, you need to put away sin. You need to wash yourselves and wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. You remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. This was the message God had for the people through Isaiah. And uh, they needed to put away the sin. And the question we came across in, in, in that point of the message was, when we have sinned, do we truly repent or do we simply repeat? And we need to get out of the process and the horrible cycle of repeating sin and allowing God to cleanse us, <laughs> trusting in Jesus in the work that He's done already and be able to walk in His ways. Isaiah also gave the message of not only putting away sin, but pursuing what is right. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, and bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Those things would help us pursuing what is right. Those were examples in how to do that. And one other thing about the, and I didn't want to just leave you uh, with the message of judgment and nothing else, but also, too, there was the message of hope that came from Isaiah. And that message of hope was basically that pardon is possible. Pardon is possible, and it takes ears to hear, and the question is, are you listening? And it also takes a response to God's glory, and how do you respond to God's glory? How are you responding to God's glory? So that was last Sunday, which brings us then into today's message, and and again, following the same theme of trusting God in troubled times, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2 along with a little bit of New Testament scripture as well. And uh, we're, we're going to see His greater glory and our walk, how that compares. But the Old Testament can be pretty hard to, uh, to read, 
A big difficulty is that we don't always know how it relates to us today. If you're going through reading through, reading through the Bible in a year, you probably experienced that as far as the Old Testament goes. You're thinking, so what does this have to do with me? Leviticus, what does this have to do with me? All these laws and rules and stuff like that. But how much of this message from Isaiah actually applies to us here in the 21st century? What, what is it? And there are many connections from then to now. For example, whenever Isaiah refers to Zion or to Jerusalem, we should think in terms of the church. Uh, Not that Zion equals the church, but we should think of them as closely linked. Like Zion, the church has become the dwelling place of God on earth. It's the key outpost of, of his kingdom. And so much of what God says about Zion and Jerusalem, God says about the church as well. Now keep this in mind as we look at part of uh, Isaiah chapter 2. For now, he focuses on Jerusalem and Zion and God's holy city. And already in chapter 1, he spoke about Zion. We didn't touch on it, but uh, the picture wasn't that great. In verse 21 of of chapter 1, he said, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. So in Isaiah's time, Jerusalem was an impressive city. It was nestled among the hills, surrounded by stone walls with noble gates, well-built homes and great buildings like Solomon's palace, and of course, the Lord's holy temple. And on the surface, it looked great. But take a look closer and you saw the truth. (laughs) The faithful city was filled with ugly things like injustice and corruption. And lurking in that beautiful temple was the hypocrisy of empty worship. It might also give us a a symbolic picture of someone who is not quite following the Lord, but says they are. On the outside of appearances, they look great, they look wonderful, but on the inside, not so good. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to correct that. He doesn't want the whitewashed tombs. He wants people who are living for the Lord, not only on the outside appearance, but in the heart as well. So Isaiah speaks of what will happen to this city. Enemies will, will overwhelm her and fire will purge her evil. And in chapter 1, he said that Jerusalem would be like a shelter in a vineyard. That's hardly a city. <laughs> but after judgment on sin, the future didn't look very bright. But Isaiah is here to say that there is hope. And that's, I trust, will be a theme that you will pick up on as we look at these different chapters of Isaiah. Even though there's trouble, even though there's difficulty, even though there's uh, awful things, there's still hope. Jerusalem will rise again in glory and peace and righteousness. And that is the message for us today. God will use the church for His greater glory. (laughs) He will. No matter how small this church family gets or what we do or what we go through, God will use Happy Valley for His glory. From Isaiah chapter 2, the first four verses, Isaiah predicts Zion's future glory in four things here we're going to look at. In its exaltation, in its attraction, in its domination, and in its reconciliation. So let's first look at its exaltation. Whenever God sent prophets, their words uh, often addressed what was going on today. This is what Isaiah will do too. He will speak to topics like Assyrian aggression, 
and, and Judah's idolatry. But then he'll also give a long-range forecast as well. He'll tell his audience about things that none of them or either their children or even their grandchildren will see take place. It's a little glimpse of the future. In verse 2, he says, in the last days. Now, our life on earth is made up of, of many days. Today, tomorrow, the day after, stretching all the way into the future. But God will start to draw these days to a close when we enter the last days. In the Bible, that phrase usually refers to the beginning of a new age, a time unlike anything before. Now, I would think that Isaiah's audience didn't really care about the distant future much. Probably a lot of people in Jerusalem preferred to hear about more immediate and pressing things like money and success and maybe the next month's big party coming up. But Isaiah also speaks to the faithful in Judah. He gives a word to sustain those still walking with God. It might have been a long way off, but this was their hope. So what's going to happen in the last days? God is going to do something incredible. Verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. Now, this was the people's pride and joy. The temple symbolized how the living God dwelled among His people, His holy house there. In the future, Isaiah says, this mountain will be established. It was already pretty firm, but even mountains... Uh, quake and they crumble. Just think of Mount St. Helens. You experience that and see how that quaked and crumbled. So God will make Zion permanent, build it up into an eternal home for Himself. And in times to come, it will be established as chief among the mountains, as verse 2 says. He said, it, 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 we said that Jerusalem was on a hill, but it wasn't the highest hill in the area. Even the nearby Mount of Olives was higher. But one day, God's hill is going to surpass all others. His dwelling will rise up above every surrounding mountain. Now, this prophecy isn't about a sudden change in elevation through some massive earthquakes and uh, causing the earth to shift below and pushing Jerusalem up higher. It's about God's city entering a time of total rain above all her competitors. Because in ancient times, mountains were often holy places. They were, they were considered sacred points where heaven and earth came close. Just think about the pagan gods who had sacred mountains as homes to shrines and, and temples. Baal was said to live on a mountain up in Syria. The Greek god Zeus dwelled on Mount Olympus. And for a long time, Scripture tells us that Israel had gone up to the high places seeking other gods. But one day, Zion will be exalted far above all hills. No longer in a contest with false gods and their pathetic mountains, but on top. She will be the Mount Everest of holiness. <laughs> one day, Isaiah says, the house of the Lord, the church of Christ, will be the one and only home of true worship. Psalm 48 gives us a picture of this when it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, His holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Kind of reminds you of a song you probably sung before. At times, this would have seemed like a far-off hope. Jerusalem was about to be brought very low. And in the next chapter, we hear about it in, in chapter 3, 
verse 1, See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. She'd be emptied. She'd be emptied out by famine, demolished, and her people exiled. God had to do this to deal with her sin. But then God will deliver, forgive, and rebuild. And later in Isaiah, we hear God say, I will rejoice over Jerusalem. After punishment and pain, God will again delight in His forgiven people and exalt in the church He has redeemed. This is always God's way in bringing about our salvation. First, deal with sin. Make atonement. Nothing can happen until our guilt is removed from the sight of God. But once it is, God can rebuild and He'll rejoice over His people. And keep in mind that when Jerusalem's people were brought into exile, they experienced only a fraction of God's curse. The full weight was saved up for the promised Christ. By His death, Jesus made it possible for God to forgive completely. And by His work, the church has a firm foundation. This is what Isaiah sees when he looks ahead. He sees Christ. He sees the church. And Isaiah turns and looks even further into the future to the last days when God's city is lifted up over all. The church might never be a center of earthly power, but it will be the place of God's presence. It's what the book of Revelation calls the New Jerusalem, or what the writer of the Hebrews calls Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the general assembly of the church. Just like those in Judah, the, this vision of the last days is probably a struggle for us too. We struggle with the kind of things that will happen in the end, like the second coming of Christ, the judgment of all people, and the perfection of the church. We want quick results. Some of us are yearning for that to happen now. Come, Jesus, come quickly now. And we're impatient to see how it works out now. Wonder what, what it will be like. Wonder who will be right in uh, eschatology and studying the end times and what will happen there. Will we be left behind here or will we be taken before? What, what will be the timing? What if Jesus' second coming doesn't happen in our time? What if the new Jerusalem isn't established for another two or 3,000 years? Remember, though, God's timing is perfect, and His promises are sure. We will most certainly reach the heavenly Jerusalem. Sin has been paid for. God can live with us again, and we can live with Him. And God has a plan to establish His kingdom overall. The exaltation of Zion's future glory. Let's look at its attraction. As Isaiah looks into the distant future, he sees that God's city will attract people from everywhere. Verses 1 and 2, in the last days, and he says, all nations will stream to it. Normally it was bad news if nations were flowing into Zion because they, they came to pillage and burn it. But this time it's very different. Listen to what will attract the nations to God's exalted mountain. In verse 3, in the future, many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that, he, that we may walk in His paths. 
So they're looking for God. They're not looking for gold. <laughs> they're, they're looking for uh, those things. They're bent on learning, not on looting. And God's plan, His holy Zion, the, the church, will become a center of, of pilgrimage for all these people from the entire world. And one day everyone will recognize that God alone is the true God, that His Son is the only Savior. One day all people will acknowledge God as the source of true wisdom, that all the riches of salvation are in Zion. And the nations are even united in seeking God as they say, come and let us go up. They will go together. It's a reversal of what happened at the Tower of uh, Babel. (laughs) Instead of being scattered in confusion, the nations will join as one, drawn by the attraction of Zion, God's house. People from every tribe, every tongue, will want to hear the true gospel. This is one of those really striking Old Testament prophecies about who is going to be saved. We, we hear it elsewhere in Isaiah, and more and more as the time of Christ's coming gets closer, it's the surprising message that God's grace won't be restricted anymore to the people of Israel. But God will embrace many tribes and, and, and nations. Listen to how Zechariah speaks of this in chapter 8, in verse 22. He says, And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. For many centuries, God's truth was kept secure in Israel. But in the last days, it will be shared freely. Many will come from east, west, north, and south, be able to enter the kingdom of God. And this is just what God promised so long ago to Abraham. He said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Imagine all these nations seeking to be, be taught in the ways of the Lord. They're longing for true religion to know the only God. And such a knowledge doesn't stop at the doors of the church building, as if it's only about finding the right God to burn incense to on the holy days. The nations will learn the ways of God. That is the style of life that pleases Him. The things God requires of us in the ordinary ordinary days of life. No longer will the Gentiles follow the wickedness of their idols but they'll seek the obedience that comes from faith. They will commit themselves to this before God, as it says, we shall walk in His paths. Once again, this was so far from the present reality, it probably seemed pretty ridiculous to the people of Judah. Can you imagine the brutal Assyrians wanting to sit down for a lesson in the law of Moses? Not quite. Or a pagan Egyptian wanting to Uh, present a a pleasing sacrifice to God. It was beyond belief. Beyond belief that God's covenant people should be an international people, a collection of many cultures. God's plans and promises stretch our ideas of what is reasonable. I'm sure you've lived there before. Maybe you're living there right now. How God is stretching you in that way. But then we remember that this is God's revelation. God has spoken it. And if God has spoken it, know it will come to pass. Reading Isaiah chapter 2, we know what happened after this time. We know how the gospel of Jesus Christ has given 
all, to, to all the nations. And on that first day of Pentecost, how the message went on beyond the borders and barriers as it would continue to go throughout the ages of the, of the apostles as well as they shared the gospel wherever they went. And since then, many millions have sought the Lord in faith. And when we think about it, we realize how gracious God has been toward us. He has included us who are Gentiles by birth. We didn't belong. We had no claim. By rights, we were outside the covenant. But in His great mercy, God invited us. He worked in us, and we responded in faith. Don't ever forget that you're among the nations who are streaming to Zion. You're among that most unlikely crowd going up to the mountain of the Lord. And we can picture how this prophecy has been fulfilled, but it's still being fulfilled. There are still so many who haven't come to, to God in faith. Many still refuse to walk in the ways of the Lord, and some will always refuse. It's like Isaiah says a bit further, how every man has his own idol of silver and gold, which they made to worship. People will cling to their idols, even to their dying day. It's a reminder that we're, we're not there yet. But Isaiah says that we shouldn't give up on the unbelievers in our country, the non-religious on our street, or the Gentiles among the nations. We, of all people, should believe in the miraculous attraction of the gospel. We need to. No matter who we're praying for, that includes government officials. We believe the gospel of Christ is the only true hope in our time, and so we should pray that many more will stream to Zion. That's our goal, to bring as many people along as possible with us. In that work of gathering, God gives us a role. The one great need of the world is for the true preaching of the gospel, and it's through the church, it is through us, that the gospel goes out to the nations. The Lord calls us to glorify Him among all the peoples, whether among our neighbors or those who are living in distant lands. We should be ready, willing, and available to be used by God in that way. And it's only when people see the glory of the Lord that they will come to Him. We can try to convince people with our good arguments and careful logic, but what really attracts people is the simple message of the gospel. When we speak about who God is and all His majesty and holiness, when we, we tell what Christ, uh, what Christ has done in us and, and what He can do in them and about His ways, Christ has made His church a city on a hill to reflect the glories of His great name, and we should be part of that reflection. So there's an attraction to the future glory of Zion. It's also uh, domination, too, and let's look at that. It's domination. In the days of Isaiah, it certainly wasn't any of the kings of Judah who held on to power. You ask someone in Jerusalem, and they'd say the Assyrians held power. Ask, ask someone today, and maybe they'll say that we, the United States, cling to world power. But there's a different picture in the last days. Isaiah says in verse 3, The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem... Not Assyria, not the USA, <laughs> will be the headquarters of world dominion. And we said the nations would come to Zion to be taught in God's ways. 
that vision is expanded now for God will not only be the teacher of the willing and of those who seek Him, there will, be, there, will, there will come a time when God is going to rule over all in justice and in truth. One day God will rule, and it will be a good rule. In verse 4, He will judge between the nations and will settle, settle disputes for many peoples. For God will be the faithful king and judge. This, is what, this was what God had always planned for His world. He wanted everything to be in full submission to Him. He wanted His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, Isaiah says, it will be. There will always be people, though, who resist and who harass God's church. But even these will finally submit. On that day, in verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I'm sure this would comfort the people of Judah as they watch the gathering storm of Assyrian invasions going on. To know that God rules from Zion, to know that His word prevails, to know that the nations are as nothing before Him, that would be encouragement. And it's a comfort for us too. Whatever happens... Whatever the uncertainty, we have the promise of final victory and His promise that if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. It's a promise we need to cling to. When we stand with the Lord, we know we're standing on the right side, for soon Christ will rule over all and will soon bring, the, bring His age of everlasting peace. You're on the right side when you're with Christ. And when those difficulties come, don't be concerned about the outcome. God is in control of those things. That's the domination of Zion's future glory. Let's look at its reconciliation. When Judah faced her enemies, she sometimes sought peace by paying expensive tributes. <laughs> Pay enough money and maybe the Assyrians won't attack. And today there can be a human-made peace among warring nations but only one peace endures, and that is God's peace in Jesus. No matter what treaty is signed, the heart of man is still bent on violence until our hearts are softened by the Lord. In the last days, says Isaiah, such a thing will happen. He unveils a picture of radical change in verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Wow, that would be a great day. By God's grace, there's going to be total disarmament as instruments of war become tools of peace. Nations won't even think of going to battle, but they'll just get back to developing creation. Swords and spears turned into plowshares and pruning hooks. Rifles and missiles turned into tractors and combines. You see, it's through the gospel of Christ that the Lord brings true peace. By making total forgiveness possible, God takes away all reasons to fight and to attack. Through forgiveness, sin loses its power and revenge is no longer an option. This would certainly be true among the nations. Imagine what would happen if the president of Russia 
came to true faith in Christ. Or how the gospel could, could transform China. <laughs> you would definitely see a different situation on the world stage. The gospel brings reconciliation wherever it goes. And it's true on a smaller scale, too, when God heals conflicts between people. He can create peace between parents and children, between husbands and wives, between those in the church who have lived in conflict with each other for years. Christ can bring peace whenever there's a genuine acceptance of His forgiveness. If we have been forgiven everything through the grace of God, then it will be my desire and goal to forgive other people. No more revenge. No more bitterness. Because of my focus on the forgiveness that I have received. When people submit to Christ, they taste the joy of reconciliation. And they, they want the sweetness of, of reconciliation to spread everywhere. To every relationship. When people truly know Christ, they want to turn weapons of war and destruction into instruments of peace and productivity, turning swords into plowshares, turning insults into blessings and grudges into lasting kindness. I hope that's the kind of peace you're building and the reconciliation that you look for in all your relationships. Now, we can have a beginning of this peace now, but the peace of the last days will be perfect and so while we wait for that future, we wait for that time to come, we walk in, in, in ways pleasing to God. As the prophet says in the, in the next verse, verse 5, Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And I believe this is the key verse in this entire passage. It's also the one that speaks directly to us today. When Isaiah was describing the reign of God in the last days, he didn't want it to be something that the people longed for in the future, but a call to walk in the light right now. And reading and studying the book of Isaiah is not just for the purpose of gaining more information, but for the purpose of applying what we learn to our day-to-day -day lives right here and right now. And that's exactly the message Isaiah had for his audience and the way that the people were to prepare for the last days and God's reign to follow was to walk in the light at that moment. Although the call to walk in the light of the Lord is in Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy is directed at Judah, we know that as followers of Jesus, we, all, we have also been given the command to walk in the light. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. And Jesus' own words also implied that His followers were, were to walk in the light. John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In fact, that is how we are to respond as we continue these series of messages in Isaiah. Walk in the light of the Lord right now. Consider new delight as your delight. So when you are revealed new truth in your, your life through, through these different chapters of Isaiah, then consider it a, a delight in the Lord that I'm going to learn something new and I'm going to grow in the Lord. And the thing is, it's right now. It's not something that was back then in Isaiah's time. It's for us today. And how do we do that in practical terms, though? And I'm 
I'm thankful that the Bible gives us some very practical instruction on how to walk in the light of the Lord. In fact, that is the main theme of John's first letter. We obviously don't have time to look at it and barely have time to even touch on it right now, but in the opening chapter, we find three practical principles that I want to share with you that will help us to walk in the light of the Lord right now. In John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, that His Son, purifies us from all, all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar, and His Word has no place in our lives. So, the first thing we need to realize from this and being able to walk in the light of the Lord is imitate God's character. Imitate God's character. Since God is light, then if we are truly His children, we will show that same character in our own lives. It's impossible to say that we are God's children and that we have a relationship with Him if we don't practice the truth. So we need to know the truth. It means that first of all, that's the, that's the first thing, knowing the truth. And since truth is a person, that means that we must know Jesus. And the primary way that we do that is through His Word. And every word in the Bible, from cover to cover, is breathed by God and His truth. So we must begin by knowing that truth through the reading and studying and memorizing of His Word. Know the truth. The second thing we should look at then is, is to live the truth. Knowing the truth is just a starting point. If we're going to walk in the light, we also have to put into practice the things that we read on the pages of Scripture. In fact, Jesus made it clear that doing what God commanded is the most important thing that we can do right now and also to be able to prepare for eternity. In Matthew chapter 7, Verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So imitate God's character and then acknowledge, acknowledge sin as sin. One of the main problems that both Israel and Judah had was that they didn't recognize their own sin. They looked around at the nations around them and cheered when God pronounced judgment on them. Go get them, God. Get those Assyrians. But they failed to recognize that their own sin was actually far worse, since they should have known better. Although most of us here this morning would admit that we would admit that we are sinners, we still have a tendency to deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin really isn't that big of a deal. It won't matter. It doesn't affect very many people. And that can take on several different forms. It's a, it, we can ignore the sin. <clears throat> we can ignore the sin. Sometimes we, we just ignore our sin and just hope that it will go away on its own. But sin doesn't just disappear on its own, whether we ignore it or not. We might um, excuse the sin. Might make excuses. Kind of like the old Flip Wilson comedy routines, right? Where he claimed the devil made him do it. But the fact is that no one can force us to sin, no matter how strong the temptation. 
That's not my opinion. That's what God's Word says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We might sometimes try to justify our sin by claiming that it's our background or our personality. That's just who I am. Or even the way God made us that causes us to sin. Sometimes we just fail to call sin by its proper name. (laughs) Instead, we just say, I made a mistake. Or um, I had a lapse in judgment. To confess my sins means to acknowledge that my sin is sin. That's the first step in dealing with with that sin in a way that will provide the cleansing that only Jesus can bring so that I can walk in the light. So imitate God's character, acknowledge sin as sin, and then engage in true fellowship with other believers. Engage in true fellowship with other believers. Not sure that we often connect fellowship with walking in the light, But John makes it clear in this passage that if we walk in the light, one of the evidences of that is that we have fellowship with our fellow believers. Unfortunately, even in the church, we often don't have a very good understanding of the word fellowship that John uses here. In fact, when I use that word, probably the first thing that pops into your head is food, right? Always have food. Food and fellowship, right? And because in our culture we associate fellowship with a food of some, some kind, and like Bobby said next, uh, in, well, next Sunday, in October, first Sunday in October, we're going to uh, open up the fellowship time again right after the service, where you'll be encouraged to come on downstairs, stay for some time of fellowship downstairs, which for most of us means that uh, while we talk about the weather or some or other some topics, we're eating. <laughs> we're talking, we're eating. But the word used here comes from a Greek root word that means to share something in common. It also indicates a relationship in which people are interdependent on each other. So sharing something in common, being interdependent upon each other. One of the best definitions of biblical fellowship I have come across is this one. It's up on the screen there. Fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers that expresses itself in outer co-participation with Christ and one another in accomplishing God's will on earth. So, true fellowship doesn't revolve around the weather or one of your favorite football or baseball teams, although I'm not saying those are bad things to talk about. You can talk about those during fellowship, but that's not fellowship as, as Scripture's telling us here. It should be centered in our common relationship with Jesus. And it results in working together as a body of believers to carry out God's will here on earth. The best fellowship in this church doesn't take place on Sunday mornings, really, while you know, we eat snacks and gather together and converse about the, uh, after the worship service about various things. But there is true fellowship going on in our Sunday Bible, uh, Sunday Bible classes, in adult Bible studies discussion times that we have that Mike leads. Great fellowship time, coming together, learning together in Christ, looking to be used by Him in other people's lives. Stephanie, as she leads the young people too, online. Great fellowship time there, talking about life, 
and working through Scripture to see how God guides them with His Word in those life experiences. It happens during our Thursday prayer group where we come to pray for the requests of many people and coming together for the common goal of bringing people and their concerns to the throne of God, praying for them. It happens during our worship team practices <laughs> when, when certain songs speak to our hearts in special ways and we minister to each other in that way. In other words, if, if I want to walk in the light, church is not optional. <laughs> church is key. Now, those who are joining us online, you're involved in church. That's great. If you're able to come to church in person, that's even better. Even better. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 gives us that setting and that, that command, basically. Let us consider how we, might, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We need to be meeting together. We need to be gathering together so we can encourage one another, spur one another on. So if others will ever want to hear about God from us, then we must know God, walk in His ways, walk in His light. If others will ever be drawn to the church, then the church must put into practice the words of the Lord. When we seek peace and pursue it, when we hear God's word preached and follow it and live it out. God's word, not Pastor Jim's words. His word is powerful in our lives. We need to get it into our lives by reading it daily, studying it, and putting it into practice. When all those things come together, then we have a common goal, we have a common hope, we have a, a common task. Being able to share that with other people, letting people know what Christ has done in us, and we have a hope. Even though things around us may be crumbling down, even though some things might not be so great in our lives, we still have the hope of God in us. And He wants to use you, no matter where you're at, what you're going through. He wants to infuse in you His Spirit to reach other people and to bring His gospel to others. Are you willing to be used by God in that way, no matter what you're going through? It might be difficult times right now. It might be troubling times. You might even wonder if God even notices you right now because you're going through some difficult times. So, so tough, so long <laughs> that you've been going through these difficult times, if God even notices. And i got to tell you that He does. He notices you and He wants to use you for His glory in that moment where you're at. So I'm sure there are so many other people who are in those same situations that need to see hope, that need to see that there's something more than just going through day in, day out of this difficult time, these troubling times. So take, take heed to Isaiah to walk in the light now. <laughs> Do it now. Follow Jesus for all your worth and see how he's going to use you in people's lives and make you a blessing in other people's lives. Now the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs. As that happens, uh, as we sing these songs, let, let us be drawn 
to the God who loves us and wants the best for us.